Let's dive into Matthew 2. Third week of Advent, we're uh, in another one of our mini-series in the large series of three years with Jesus that we're exploring together. And last week, we looked at uh, the visit of the Magi, how uh, um, these wise men came traveling from the east because they had uh, seen a star. Now, um, apparently, have you, did you guys hear about this? Next slide. Uh, this image, anyone recognize this image? Apparently, uh, yesterday, the Pentagon uh, revealed that they had a secret division uh, exploring UFOs. Uh, this picture was taken by an F-16 Navy. Uh, you can listen to an audio of them talking about this. Uh, and so uh, the Pentagon revealed yesterday that this was the star. Uh, I knew that would flop. Never mind. Uh, <clears throat> moving on. Um, we, <laughs> we explored uh, the Magi and how they came, they followed this star, and they stopped uh, to talk to a guy named Herod. Uh, he's gone, gone down in history as Herod the Great, because uh, he had sons that were also named Herod, uh, different Herods, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, uh, and the like. And uh, they stopped to talk to Herod the Great, and they say, where, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Now, this is terribly upsetting to Herod, because Herod is... Uh, Rome's puppet king of the Jews. He has been established as the king of the Jews for all of Israel by Rome. So uh, Herod reports to Caesar, and he does whatever he can to keep Caesar happy. And so these magi ask Herod, where is the one born king of the Jews? And Herod does not like this so much. And the magi continue to travel to Bethlehem, where they find the baby Jesus, and they give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we left off in chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so God speaks to these wise men in a dream and says, don't go back the same way, don't go back to Herod, who had told them, come back once you find this king of the Jews, that I may come and worship him as well, uh, which we know is not what would have happened. And so they are warned in a dream to go back by another route, and they take a detour, uh, as often we find in our own lives. There are detours we take that are not expected, and uh, we're going to soon discover a detour that was required of Mary and Joseph uh, and the baby Jesus as well. That was unexpected. Uh, verse 13. When they had gone, when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So now... Uh, we as the readers see what Herod's true intentions are. His intentions were not to worship the child. His intentions were to kill the baby Jesus. Now, I, I want us to enter into the first century for a little bit, or just prior to the first century. Many believe Jesus was born just prior to uh, the first century. And uh, I want to look a little bit at who this guy Herod is, and why is he so interested in killing Jesus. Why does he, this great man Herod, feel threatened by 
a baby. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about Herod, who he was, uh, and what he was about. So this slide is uh, the best idea we have of what Herod may have looked like. Um, and then next slide is uh, what Herod looked like in the, the Bible film that came out. Uh, remember that multi-part Bible film that came out uh, in 2013, I think it was? So uh, they've depicted him as uh, probably a true depiction, a, a very angry man. Uh, I think this is the scene where he discovers that he's been outwitted by the wise men. And so uh, Herod was... Um, he was a builder. He built massive things. And so I want to look at some of the things he built. So this is an artist's rendition of Herod's palace in Jerusalem. Now, Herod, uh, uh, to our knowledge, Herod had at least five palaces in Israel. And uh, Israel is only 140 miles north to south, 40 miles east to west. So not a huge landmass. Uh, Herod had five palaces just in this small area. This is uh, uh, off of, if you can go back please, uh, off of uh, excavations that they've done. This is the best idea they have of what Herod's palace may have looked like in Jerusalem. Now, if you look in the upper right-hand corner, this is the artist's model of uh, the Temple Mount. Herod also built that Temple Mount. He rebuilt uh, the temple that had been destroyed, and that huge temple mount around it, and then just behind it, you see this fortress, which uh, was just slightly taller than the temple. So Herod could say, just so you know who's in charge here, just so you know who's in power, my fortress behind the temple, a little bit taller than the temple. Now, Herod uh, was raised Jewish, but he was half Edomite and half Jewish. And uh, he was deeply hated by the Jewish people. But the, his project to rebuild the temple was done because he wanted to favor, he wanted the favor of the Jewish people, especially the Jewish religious people. And so the wealthy in Jerusalem, the wealthy Jewish leaders, many of them were friendly with Herod because he kept them in power, he kept them wealthy, and he rebuilt the temple. Now, this temple, next slide, had, has massive rocks. This is a picture of the Temple Mount, which the temple sat on. You can see how massive these rocks were. Uh, the next slide shows underground. Uh, this isn't a great picture of it, but this is the largest stone they've found in the excavations of the Temple Mount, uh, weighing 500, they estimate around 517 tons. They have no idea how these rocks were moved, because this is way before the time of modern machinery. They, they have no clue how these massive rocks were moved. This, these are the type of projects that Herod engaged in. Next slide. Uh, this is Masada. It's a huge uh, mountain in the desert uh, overlooking the Dead Sea. Herod built a massive fortress on Masada. This was one of his palaces. Next slide is an artist's rendition of what it may have looked like, a multi-level, multi-tiered palace on Masada. And uh, you can see the Dead Sea there in the background. So Herod loved building huge things, primarily for himself. Uh, next slide. Now, this is uh, Caesarea. 
This is uh, on the coast uh, of uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And the largest port city in the world at the time was in Athens, and it was, uh, it was 60 acres. And so Herod decided he wanted to build the largest port city in the world, and so he built one that was over 500 acres, Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea named after who? Caesar. So a uh, nice little brown nosing going on there. And uh, so he built this massive port city, uh, back one slide, right on the coast. The problem was it was all marshy. There was no way you could build on it, so he had it all filled in. Uh, this is in the first century. Over 500 acres, he had it all filled in so he could build Caesarea right on the coast. Uh, next slide shows the amphitheater he built uh, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I've sat in that theater in a and a young lady got up and started singing, and from the wind, you know, way before the time of microphones and all that, because of the wind coming from the Mediterranean Sea and blowing, her voice just carried through the whole theater. Uh, absolutely amazing. Next slide. This uh, is a pool that goes out into the Mediterranean Sea. So he built his palace out into the Mediterranean Sea as well. He, he was uh, thinking Dubai before there was ever Dubai. Uh, and so he built this pool out into the Mediterranean Sea, but the Mediterranean Sea is salt water and he didn't particularly care for salt water, so he filled it with fresh water. Uh, the problem is Caesarea is 19 miles away from the nearest fresh water source. So what do you do when you don't have fresh water and you need to go 19 miles away? Next slide. Uh, next slide. He built a 19-mile aqueduct. Uh, and so this went 19 miles all the way to Caesarea. And every meter, it dipped one millimeter. So it went from the hill country all the way down to the coast. And he built it so it just barely dipped all the way down to get fresh water for his pool and drinking and, and other things. So uh, you're you beginning to get a sense of what this guy was like. Uh, massive, massive building projects. Next slide. This is the Herodium. So he had Caesarea, named after Caesar. Herodium, named after himself. Uh, and he wanted to build another palace in the middle of the wilderness. And he wanted to build it way, way up on a hill. Problem was, there was no hill there. So he had this one built. 2,000 years ago, he had that built. Brought in uh, Roman colonnades. And uh, next slide shows an artist's rendition of what it may have looked like, the excavations they've done down below the hill uh, showed that he had yet another freshwater pool. Uh, the man liked his pools. And his palace up on top. The next slide shows an aerial view of the excavations of the Herodium. Uh, most scholars believe that this is where Herod was buried, in the Herodium. So this guy had wealth, influence, power, uh, and he taxed 
the people. On top of what Rome was already taxing the people, Herod taxed the people. And he liked his position, he liked his power, and he's heard that a baby has been born. And he wants to kill the baby. Now, killing was nothing new for Herod. He, he had nine wives that we know of, possibly more. Uh, one of them he had killed because he thought she was uh, trying to kill him. Uh, he had 14 children that we know of, probably more. Uh, and three of his sons he had killed because he thought they wanted to take his position. So he had them killed. So Herod uh, killing, nothing new for Herod. And so he hears that there's a baby who might want to take his position, and he has thoughts in his mind of killing this baby, the same baby that the Magi came and worshipped. And so God comes to Joseph in a dream, and he says, go to Egypt. Now, many scholars have drawn this really interesting uh, connection between Joseph of Genesis, the dreamer, who was sold into slavery in Egypt, and the, all of the Hebrew people eventually end up in slavery in Egypt, and this Joseph, the human father of Jesus, having a dream to go to the place where they, his people, had once been slaves. Now, imagine you're Joseph, and you have this dream. You're thinking, what have I gotten myself into here? What, at first, I was going to divorce Mary quietly, but I had a dream, and this angel told me, no, uh, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, so okay, but now our lives are in danger, and you, you want me to go to Egypt? Uh, and so Joseph must pack up his family and flee for their lives to Egypt because this man, Herod, wants to see them dead. Now, uh, if you read through the genealogy that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter 1, what you realize about Joseph, I mean, we read that genealogy and we often are like, ah, Jesus, he's the rightful king of the Jews. He, he's the rightful king. What we often forget or miss is that Joseph is the rightful king. Joseph is in the line of David. Joseph should be on the throne. And instead, this puppet king, Herod, is. Now imagine you're Joseph. What kind of disappointments are you living with when you know my lineage goes back to King David? My lineage says I am the rightful king. And now the puppet king wants us dead because he's heard about this baby. And wise men from the east have come and worshipped this baby who is born king of the Jews. And we must flee to Egypt. And so they are on the run. Verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, they escaped. The, the Christmas story is one 
of danger. It's one of loss. It's, it's one of disappointment, along with all the joy and all the excitement and all the delight. Uh, we worship a Savior who came into the world, and, and, and it was revealed to shepherds that the Messiah had been born. And these shepherds come to Bethlehem, to this cave, and see this baby and rejoice that the Messiah has been born. But in short order, Herod wants him dead. And he becomes a refugee. They migrate to Egypt to flee from this tyrannical king who wants them dead. And this refugee is the Messiah of the world. Uh, we live in a world where we look back on this story. And it can be hard at times when, when for, often for us, Christmas has become about gift giving and the lights and the trees and, and all of that's good and beautiful. Uh, but the original Christmas story isn't about getting more people more things. And, it, and it's not about eggnog and, and uh, silly sweaters and, and all of that. It's, it's about a refugee baby on the run from someone who wants him dead. And when we look back on this story, and as we reflect on this for us in our own lives today, I, I wonder what it looks like for us to make room in the end. What, what does it look like for us to make room for this refugee baby in our lives today? What does it look like for us to ask the question, who is our king? Because here, here's... The thing, if you can go back to just one of the one of the archaeological sites, maybe back uh, to one of the city palaces. Yeah, there. There's Masada. It's in ruins. I mean, it's impressive. It's it's amazing that he was able to build something on a mountain two thousand years ago, like he did. But it, it's in ruins. Uh, and the movement of the refugee baby is still on the move. It's not in ruins. It's still on the move. Uh, leaders will come and go. Kings will come and go. Prime ministers will come and go. Presidents will come and go. But the refugee baby, who is the Messiah and king of the world, is here to stay. And his movement is still just getting started. For us today, we get to ask ourselves, uh, who is our king? Uh, do we stand impressed with the accomplishments of Herod or other leaders, or do we bow in humble adoration and praise of the baby? who ultimately would end up on a Roman execution stake. Uh, Jesus shows us, as do Mary and Joseph, uh, what it looks like to live life in the now. Uh, they were not expecting this. 
Mary was not expecting to give birth to the king of the world. Uh, Joseph was not expecting to be the human father of the king of the world and, and to have to gather his family and flee to another country in order to preserve their lives. Uh, what does it look like for us to live in the now? And what do we do when our expectations aren't met? I, I wonder, what do you do with the unexpected? What do you do with disappointment, grief, and loss? What do you do with things not turning out as you had hoped? Uh, this family models for us a way of being in the now, accepting reality and listening. Imagine if Joseph hadn't paid attention. Imagine if Joseph hadn't listened to what God was saying in the dream. He listened. He responded. He obeyed. He gathered his family, and he left, and he went to a place he would rather not go. Believe me, Joseph and Mary, they did not want to go to Egypt, but they went. And we don't know what their experience was like there. Maybe it was fine. Maybe it was horrible. We, we just don't know what their experience was like there. What we can know is that they longed for home, especially in a culture like that. They longed for a home. What, what happens when uh, Joseph hears that Herod had died? He immediately returns. They longed for home. They didn't want to be refugees. They didn't want to be there. They wanted to be where they were rooted and grounded. Uh, they were waiting and longing for home. Th this is what the Advent season is about the waiting, the longing for home, for, to experience Christ born in our midst yet again. Will you allow the king of the world, the refugee baby, the Christ, to be born in your midst anew this morning? Uh, Jesus shows us how to deal with suffering and loss all the way to the cross. From, from the moment this baby is born, there is a price on his head. Those in power want him dead. From Herod all the way to the religious leaders, Pilate and Rome. Jesus shows us a better way of being in the world that it's not about gaining more power, more wealth, more position. Uh, all those things end in ruins. We have the ruins of Herod's dynasty. But we today live in the midst of the kingdom of Jesus. When we come and each week partake of the bread and the cup, we remember why Jesus came, that the incarnation is this beautiful, mysterious, wondrous gift of God come in human flesh, come among us, 
Emmanuel, God with us, to show us a better way of being in the world. And this God, this Jesus, walked the long, hard road all the way to the cross. And when we partake of the bread and the cup, we remember what he did. That on the night he was betrayed, Christ took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This, this morning, I want to invite you as you come and take the bread and dip it in the cup. I want to invite you to ask God to allow Christ to be born anew in you today. Ask God to once again work in your own heart, in your own life, and transform you from the inside out. Uh, ask God to allow this Christ, this Jesus, to flow through you so that you can in turn extend that love, that hope, that healing to everyone you encounter. And may it spread through the whole universe. God, we thank you for the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. God, thank you for the way you work through human history. And that even now, right now, in each of us, you are working. And you're inviting us to live into the kingdom movement that you brought 2,000 years ago. God, thank you for the knowledge that human kingdoms come and go, but your kingdom is forever. May we be a people who long for home. May we be a people who long for more of you. And may we be a people who live in your kingdom movement right here, right now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.